Hello and welcome to Nightlight. I have a letter here in front of me from someone who uh, was writing in response to our last message on personal reflections about prophecy. He says, I'm grateful for the timing of this message. I've been very perplexed about the manifestations of the gifts by people who are clearly struggling to get unstuck but are honestly trying to resume growing in spiritual maturity and helps me put a few puzzle pieces together uh, hearing your message. The disconnect between receiving a gift and having the wisdom to use it and its best end can be confusing. And I will add to that, that confusion is kind of necessary. Uh, God's not the author of confusion, but he is he does make us grow up, and we have to be able to make mistakes to work through through the the learning process. Anyway, he goes on to say, I've been turning out uh, the, the prophets. I've been tuning them out for some time now. I was truly tired of being excited and exhorted only to feel thrown under the bus by the time uh, the timing or the lack of proper perimeters that were included in their prophecies. Some were just obviously incorrect or improperly qualified, he says. Some prophets inferred that everything would be corrected, the wicked dethroned, and revival in full swing by Independence Day. Well, on the bright side, the confusing prophetic words and questionable time frames caused me to focus more on the only unquestionable truths like the love of God, the sovereignty of God, the character of God. No one can put a time frame on these things except in the most general terms. The sense of dread and foreboding that has been so heavy on me for months this is, this is a really important paragraph. The sense of dread and foreboding that has been so heavy on me for months has given way now to peace, comfort, and joy. Not because circumstances have changed, but because of the trials and tribulations that are shaking loose childish fantasies and wishful thinking. And I I don't know if he was making reference to his own personal childish fantasies and wishful thinking or if he was just observing that is happening across the board, but it doesn't really matter. We're, we're all being shaken loose from childish fantasies and wishful thinking on various levels. Abraham Heschel, in his book on the prophets, wrote years ago, if we define truth as being that which conforms to facts, we may understandably censure the prophets because sometimes they seem inaccurate, incongruous, even absurd. Now he's speaking of the scriptural prophets. But if we define truth as capital R reality and not just conforming to facts, we see prophetic truth as reality reflected in God's mind. 
in terms of statistics or facts, the prophet's statements are grossly inaccurate. Yet their concern is not with facts, but with the meaning of facts. The significance of human deeds, the true image of God's exist of man's existence, cannot be expressed by mere facts. Within the limits of the human mind, its scope embraces only a fragment of the whole of society, a few instances of history, and that's all. The small, limited human mind only sees and thinks of what has happened, but is unable to imagine what might have happened, or, I'll add, the many hidden contingencies and entanglements behind all of it. Let me read that one more time. I'm not trying to be unnecessarily wordy. But Heschel says, the small, limited human mind only sees and thinks of what has happened, but is unable to imagine what might have happened, or, I'm adding, that may that the many contingencies and entanglements behind all that has happened or is happening or is prophesied to happen. Now, before we give in to our typical and somewhat understandable reaction to this, that that's all nothing but a lame excuse of what clearly appears to be false prophecy, before you, you give in to that thought, stop with me and listen closely. Yes, there are certainly prophetic predictions of specific events and the timing of those events that have not come to pass yet. When something specific fails, we must face head on that it has seemingly failed. The danger for us, though, is that we may foolishly assume that the failure is totally the fault of the messenger. It may be, but it may be our own fault. It may be that we have failed to humbly and wisely steward the prophetic word that was given to us. We have a problem, and it's not just that of prophecies that did not come to pass. That is a problem, but we have another problem. It is something more dangerous than just prophecies that haven't come to pass. I'm speaking of our shallow even childish, lack of willingness or ability to do the demanding hard work of prayerful observation and discernment. We're truly the product more of our television watching than our seeing in the Spirit. We expect the story to be clear, the flow of events to be easily followed, the outcome to be foreseeable, the bad guys to be nailed, and the ending to be neat and pretty, and most of all, timely. It should all unfold within an episode or at least by the final program season. We don't like cliffhangers. We sure don't like unclear storylines. When a seemingly clear-cut black and white statement of prophecy doesn't unfold as clearly predicted, of course we should examine it, question it, and possibly dismiss it. But while we're throwing out the the bathwater, 
what still of the baby? I mean, some people have, I'm, I'm really tired of using that phrase, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We really need to find a, a better metaphor than that. That one's just worn out, and that baby's really tired of flying through the air. But if we throw out the bathwater, what are we still focusing on concerning the baby? In other words, if you're angry at prophecies that didn't seem to come to pass, what are you focused on that the, the Lord is speaking to your heart, that you are embracing? A childish magical view of prophecy says, quote, if it's true and from God, it must come to pass exactly as it was predicted. If not, it's all false, and the prophet is a false prophet. Then we may congratulate ourselves on our commitment to truth and our awareness of reality. We are secure in the idea that no one can put one over on us. No, sir. Our eyes are wide open. But are they? Yes, we can, I think, safely say that a clearly stated prophetic word that says precisely that this or that is going to occur on this or that timeline should be examined and possibly completely set aside. But usually, if we're willing to press in and discern, we will most often find aspects of the word that may be valuable, and we may need to compare prophecy with prophecy, and together discern more deeply what is truly being said and what needs to be awakened in our hearts by what has been said. I've quoted this over and over, but it's obviously in need of being restated. We know in part, 1 Corinthians 13, we prophesy in part. That's why in the New Testament we do these things corporately and ruled over by love, not by law. What is the Spirit trying to get through to us? What are we innocently or sometimes not so innocently, adding to the pure word from God that needs to be rejected or at least adjusted? What is the final kernel of needed revelation that we then need to hold on to and steward wisely? If we don't adhere to these principles, we will not only miss what the Spirit is saying to us, but we will build up an arrogant judgmentalism that Paul warns about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when he says, Reject every evil form, hold fast to what is good, do not despise prophecy. So, I'll probably say this more than once in this hour together, but why do you have to hold fast only that which is good unless you are throwing aside that which is not good. And what is despicable about prophecy that would make you have to be told, don't despise prophecy. In other words, learn to discern it like mature people instead of pouty children. It's certainly true that the shallow mindset that I just referred to not only has deformed how we hear the prophetic, but how we deliver it. Certainly, many prophetic voices seem to have gotten caught up in the corporate expectation of how things should happen. Then the momentum built one word on top of another until it seemed irrefutably clear that things would occur just 
as so-and-so says, because so-and-so also says it, and so-and-so and so-and-so confirmed that. And you know, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. And then, of course, add to that the compound interest of social media and the multiplication of voices on top of voices, opinions on top of opinions, reports on top of reports, and they all seem to confirm one another. There's no corporate, local body of believers functioning in New Testament discernment in relationship to one another, and uh, we get in we get in trouble. When all this becomes reinforced, uh, we begin living inside our own preferred pseudo-reality. As Jeremiah referred to it, we begin to, quote, prophesy out of each other's mouths. That is horizontal in the sense that it's merely coming from human spirit to human spirit. It's not the word of the Lord coming from him. And let me add here, we need to be wary of overly interpreting the metaphor of horizontal referring to the earthly and vertical referring to the heavenly. For God's Spirit is here with us in our horizontal realm. And the kingdom is already now among us. But it's a, it's still a useful term if you don't take it too far. Anyway, we judge all prophecy by scriptures, but obviously some prophetic words cannot be easily given a textual litmus test. How do you know if a word spoken over you is accurate, for instance? It may have personal details in it that you know to be true. It may have other details, such as directives, unveiling of future events, etc., that cannot be tested on the spot. You can't just flip your Bible open, put your finger down, and find an exact verse that fits the situation, although I've known cases where that has happened, but it's the exception, not the rule. But such words needs to need to be prayerfully discerned, examined, and given time to be confirmed or not. As we talked about earlier, this is what should happen in the local gathering or with person or with personal prophecy ministry uh, between individuals. It should all the more be examined on the larger extra local scale, uh, even more uh, focused and more. Uh, Stringently, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. This requires that we all have a local circle of relationships, preferably a functioning body of local believers, but do the best you can where you are. Some people don't just don't have that, but you surely you have one or two other people. We should all locally or even on the phone be sharing with each other, seek to hear the clear word that is shining through, an otherwise muddy flow. But in a culture of shallow thinking, quick fix, fantasy fulfillment, pop Christian culture, there will not likely be much of this level of corporate waiting on God or seeking Him for clarity. But there's another issue even more important than this one. Not only are we shallow in our thinking and unscriptural in our corporate relating, we're also very American in our worldview. Well, what else can we be, Clay? We're Americans. Uh, and please forgive the American exclusive reference, those of you who are in Canada or the UK or Europe or the Middle East. 
But apply this wherever you can apply it in your own circumstance. But what I mean by this personal nationalistic reference is that when it comes to the prophetic, especially in times of high instability and immorality, it's easy to get stuck in one of two opposite ditches. On the one hand, we may become focused on sin, the Antichrist, what the devil is doing, the mark of the beast, etc., on the, and our personal failures, we get focused on that. Our sense of spiritual weakness, and with the help of some overly sin-conscious preaching, we can become overwhelmed with the gloom and doom of our surrounding culture and become sickly preoccupied with bad news and end up really in fear. Or we may hit the other ditch, and in this ditch we see only the wickedness of the wicked. We take on an us-versus-them posture. We see ourselves as the righteous flamethrowers of God ready to call fire down on everyone who's not like us, and any word that calls us to examine our own hearts to deal honestly and truly with sin in our own lives is cast aside as legalism, old-school condemnation, or whatever convenient, nifty, trendy phrase allows you to remain unmoved to take the convicting, correcting word of the Holy Spirit seriously. Yes, we all have seen the utter fruitless results of living under the weight of religious condemnation, where no matter how much you examine yourself, it's never enough. No matter how much you repent, it's never enough. How much you pray, it's never enough. This is driving, uh, being driven by a false religious spirit from hell and should be rightly rejected. But this driving over-focus on our own purity or lack thereof is not counterbalanced by some flippant, immature licentiousness on the other end. The one ditch doesn't save us from the other ditch. They're both ditches. What will save us from either is what God is always after. God is not merely after moral goodness for behavior's sake. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. God is obviously concerned about moral character. But that's not mainly what he's after, as if he's just a moralist. He wants moral reality because only that can preserve life. And God is ultimately life and love and truth. So what God is always after when he's dealing with sin is the return to first love. Why can't we see this when we read the second and third chapters of Revelation that Jesus certainly does put his finger on sin and brokenness and wrong in the churches? Some silly people have actually been teaching that there's no such thing as repentance for the person who belongs to Jesus because that's all been taken care of legally by the cross. Well, that's just another form of legalism in the other direction. It's just as destructive as the opposite form of hellfire damnation legalism and guilt motivation is in the other direction. Neither one of these is worth spent. Nothing matters at all except loving God and loving each other, period. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So, of course, Jesus deals with sin, but he always does it out of an unending love. 
And he calls us at the very beginning of these letters in Revelation, which is spoken to all of us, by the way. He calls us back to our first love at the very opening letter. Or as one translation has it, he calls them back to the springtime of their relationship with him. There and there alone is the place of freedom and safety in the face of spiritual deception and the level of warfare that we're entering into. The events of this past year have provided many worthwhile questions for us to ask ourselves about ourselves. But we naturally would rather ask more about the outside events that affect our comfort. How will the economy recover? Are we in physical danger from disease or even from foreign invasion? Can our cities be safe and orderly again? These and other related questions are, of course, understandably pressing and important. But the true voice of the prophetic stands aloof from what seems to be these normal questions that any sane person should ask and goes rather straight to the heart of relationship with God and with each other. The prophet asks questions in the face of such times, such as one you've heard us quote, if the footmen tire you, what will you do when the horsemen come? If you cannot keep your footing in the low country, how will you make it through the thickets of the rising flood of the Jordan? Quoting Jeremiah. God speaking to Jeremiah as Jeremiah is complaining that things are not coming to pass the way he thought they would. In other words, the true prophetic edifies, exhorts, and comforts. To edify is to build up. To exhort is to give direction. And to comfort? Well, we think we already know what comfort is. That is what we want most of all. We want to be comfortable. But there's a painting in the British Museum we all need to have hanging in our own house, I guess. It shows a battle scene where troops are running up a hill and behind them is their commander with his sword drawn and it appears as if he's chasing them up the hill with that sword. The name of the painting is a general comforting his troops. Yes, comfort means to surround like a fort. Compass means to put your arm around or like the word compass means the circle of the earth. Comfort means to build a fortress around to protect. And it does have an element of comforting in it. But it also has a symbol of warfare in it. To completely surround the fortress and stand fast in battle. The Holy Spirit brings both kinds of comfort depending on the present need. And our present need is the battle kind as much, if not more, than the snuggly kind. And we do need both. And I'm not negating one for the other. What we have seen coming up in our hearts during these pressing times, we need to to look at squarely and honestly. Are you becoming more aware of anything coming up in you that's not right? Fear, anxiety, impatience, anger, unforgiveness. Uh, We all have our own lists. If what is coming up in you, is is it bothering you? Uh, 
the voice of the true prophetic then asks these uncomfortable questions as these things come up, not to be condemning or self-righteously condescending, but to help remove anything in us that would set us up to be overcome with evil. So even when prophetic words have failed to come exactly to pass, have they been serviceable in helping you look at yourself and look at life and look at circumstances, both nationally, internationally, and privately, and given you an opportunity to put yourself before the Lord and examine yourself? Or is the only thing you have on your mind is they said we'd be in Nirvana by July 4th, and and that hasn't happened. Kingdom would come by July 5th, and that hasn't happened. To hear some people, especially some preachers, you would think that the only reason for all of this, the only reason for all of life, is to constantly be set up to fail so you can constantly be called on to repent. And repent is seen to constantly mean to mean to constantly feel bad about yourself. And that somehow this constant negativity somehow brings pleasure to God for some unknown crazy religious reason. So if that's the way you're hearing what I'm saying, please don't hear it that way because that's not what I'm saying. The true prophetic helps us escape the cycle of meaningless inner criticism. The prophetic voice calls us up and out of the worldly realm of either self-indulgence on the one hand or self-condemnation on the other And the true prophetic voice awakens a clear vision of life, love, purity, hope, purpose, vision. Most of all, worshipful intimacy with God and true loving care for each other and even including our enemies. Yes, on one level, sin is the breaking of the law. But on another far greater level, sin is the breaking of a heart, God's heart. Because it is the breaking of a relationship. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God does not say, Thou hast broken the law. He says, The blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. The prophetic voice, even when it may be inaccurate or in certain aspects or details, missing certain points, If it is at all sourced in the Spirit of God, it is moved against evil and for good, against destruction and for life, against sin and for purity, not for some shallow legalistic preoccupation with rule-keeping, but for the sake of meaning and relationship, which is another way of saying for the sake of love. The prophetic word is not mainly about telling us details about the future as much as it is to move us to a higher place in the spirit so we rise to a different perspective into the future. We think from a different realm. Even if I don't see the details lining up exactly as some prophetic word said, listening causes me to consider and have to discern a greater point of view. I have to pray. I have to watch to discern, to deal with what I see being revealed inside my own heart, whether good or ill. 
Again, this is why Paul told the Thessalonians they were not to despise prophecy. They See, they had been troubled by some who were bringing wrong interpretations of prophecy. I mean, if you read it, you'll see that. So Paul is telling them not to believe these people, but not to reject prophecy either. They were being called, just as we are now, to learn to discern and hold fast that which is good. Now, let me try to tell you from my own personal perspective what I believe is going on at this present stage in this unfolding war. We all know, or should know, the verse from 1 Peter 4.17, that judgment must begin at the house of God. Again, how can judgment begin at the house of God if God's people are no longer in need of repentance once they are in the house of God? It's crazy. First, we need to understand the meaning of repentance. This is, I mean, we've talked about this before, but we have to go back over it because I think it's been misinterpreted so long in our minds, we just have to keep hearing, hearing it differently. Repentance, metanoia, means to think differently so as to live differently. It doesn't just mean to change your opinion. It means to be transformed deep in your thought processes until it affects your behavior. It does not necessarily mean to weep and wail and feel horrible about ourselves unless what we are learning to think differently about is so terrible that the revelation of its evil is so deep, then it can bring about a, a, a weeping and wailing and terrible pain. I've been there. I, I know that's true. But I have much more often been in the less dramatic but more helpful place of simply seeing truth on a greater level and then adjusting my thinking and behaving due to that new revelation. Growing up. But at any rate, the point now is that God's judgment doesn't begin with the wicked. It begins with us. And many of us who have been upset at the unfolding of recent events erroneously thought that the necessary judgment in the house of God should have all been accomplished by the end of last year, and all that was left now was the judgment of the wicked. So let's get after it. Let's go after the wicked. So add to that our American TV mind imagination and what we come up with is a scenario as follows. The house of God is shaken by the discomfort of the past few years. Some high-profile leaders in secret sin have been brought down. Prayer meetings are better attended as well as growing rallies of intercessors. An awakening to action is seen now on a greater scale than ever with people activated to fight evil such as trafficking, racism, poverty, pornography, abortion. And we thought that was the completion of the beginning judgment at the house of God. So what should immediately follow should be the dramatic swift satisfying for us. Sweeping destruction of the wicked, great outpouring of the Spirit, final harvest of the end of the age, and the rapture? I'm not beginning... Uh, I better not go off <laughs> on that. Y'all know where I stand on that. I'm, I'm not being too inaccurate, though, am I? When it has not flowed this way, many have begun to despise all prophecy. 
Here may be a great time to seek to illustrate what I'm trying to point out. I'm not totally accurate in what I'm saying, am I? If you examine my statements with a fine-tooth comb, I might come up quite short in the details of accuracy. I may be missing some points. I may be overzealous. I may be getting too much of clay in it. But I am not at all coming up short in the spirit of truth of what I'm saying. And for that, you should hold fast to what is true and not despise the whole message. See, Paul tells the Thessalonians exactly what I'm telling you. Test the prophecy, then hold fast to the part that is solid. That means there is often a human mixture that needs to be discerned and possibly adjusted or even rejected. But the good is to be sifted through and held on to and the overall function of the prophetic is to be honored and not despised. You have had to, to do that with me more than once, probably, I bet. So we must learn to do that with the more public, high-profile prophetic words as well. Some we may have to fully dismiss. Some may have even been charlatans. All that will eventually be made clear and will be seen for what it is at the right time. That brings me to this point. I believe we are in this current ongoing time of sifting and shaking that things have not been as quickly and easily completed in the overall overthrow of evil because the judgment that begins at the house of God has not been completed at all. I believe there is coming soon, and even already now is, a great scandalous upheaval of secret ongoing sin in high places of church culture that will be scandalizing to many people. Many more than what we've seen so far. Many will become offended at God by it, as if God was the problem, which just shows an area of their hearts that needed to be unfolded, uh, uncovered. If that is in their hearts, it must be uncovered and purified by this fire. Some will be terrified by the severity of the shameful, destructive events and the degree of this shaking. Uh, and the degree of the shaking is again necessary to bring shallow, childish, silly, religious, easy believism to its knees. Grace will be shown to mean that which delivers us from sin, not that which covers ongoing sin. And this will be a great deliverance as those shaken by the coming judgment come to such a wonderful revelation of the victory over sin at the cross that they do truly repent. They change their thinking so that they are able to change their way of behaving. This will be a huge victory for them in the area of goodness and life and love in them and for them and through them and then to the world around them. I should say us. As we then begin to manifest the reality of the living body of Christ to the world, we obviously are barely doing that. We're getting better, but man, do we have a long way to go. I just talked just a few minutes ago to a, a friend in uh, Southern California who's just been through a terrible, terrible time at work, and he was really feeling sorry for himself, and he went out to just walk and try to walk it all off and came upon a a guy sleeping on a park bench. And he 
woke him up and asked him when the last time he had a meal was. Took him and fed him and spent two hours with him sharing the gospel. But how did he share the gospel? By pulling tracks out of his pocket? No. He sat on that same park bench and talked to him about life and heartache and brokenness. And first the guy said, well, I don't even believe in God because my parents died and my brother committed suicide and just begin to list all the terrible stuff that happens that makes people mad at God that they don't believe in. And so, anyway, when, when we do this, the world will come to know that Jesus is who he says he is because they will see and be attracted to him through us. They will be so hungry for love that lasts. They will to- take hold of you and say, tell me what makes your life work so well Why are your relationships so solid? Why are you so happy and at peace in the face of all this craziness? Yes, I'm prophesying. All this will happen by the 1st of October, 2021. No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea when it will all happen. It may be happening now. It already is happening, at least in that story I just told you in Southern California. I bet it's happening on your your block I just know that evil is not self-sustaining. Evil will eventually self-destruct under the weight of its own burdensome falsehoods. But that means all evil. So the evil in us is got to be dealt with. God's people still operating in some aspect of evil? Are we more Republican than repentant, for instance? Are we more black than we are Christian? Are we more Democrat than we are discerning? Are we more capitalist than we are compassionate? Are we more racist than we are real? Are we still secretly worshiping at the altar of our own private gods of lust and shrines of self-gratification? Secretly? Do we protect ourselves from answering these needed questions by flipping it all off as legalism and claim grace is our Band-Aid that covers our ongoing sins, we must seek to find and devour the essence of prophecy, not its mere outer shell. Revelation 19 verse 10 refers to the essence, the core meaning of prophecy. I fell down on my face at the feet of the messenger to worship him. But he stopped me and said, don't do that. For I'm only a fellow servant with you and one of your brothers who cling to what Jesus says. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus, in other words, all that Jesus stands for and teaches, the testimony of Jesus is the essence of prophecy. So we may have made a similar mistake with our messengers also, huh? We have at first fallen down before them as the prophets who will tell us all that God wants us to know so we don't have to listen for ourselves. And we fell at the feet of the social media network for our flow of information. We should now take seriously the words spoken to John. Don't do this. Worship God. For the true spirit of prophecy is is to embrace the word of Jesus. So when we hear prophecy spoken, ask ourselves these questions. Does this word point me more to Jesus 
or is it pointing me to current events and my own personal interests? Does this word cause me to examine my own heart? Or is it only merely making me feel like those wicked people are going to get what they got coming to them and it's good enough for them? Does this word seem to affirm other words that I and others have examined? Or is it an unexamined groupthink on the horizontal sphere of public media? I would lay it aside, no matter how impressive it is. Or at least pray for discernment and confirmation. Does this word exhort, encourage, and comfort me? Or in other words, does it strengthen me to take a stand and having done all, keep standing? Finally, does this word need to be simply put on the shelf and given time to be further confirmed? And then, <laughs> second finally, finally we need to understand some, some prophets are only called to regions or specific realms of prophetic authority. I mean, not everybody has an anointing to speak to the nations. Not everybody has an anointing to speak to politics. I think Lance Wall now is a, a great gift to speak to the prophetic issues related to politics. Uh, he, he has a special insight and gift there. Uh, I think Sean Boltz is obviously called to the realm of Hollywood and uh, in that, that circle. And I could name other people who have certain realms and certain gifts. I have a certain realm that I know I am specifically called to. And I get in trouble when I get excited or frustrated or angry and start wanting to speak outside the realm that I was called to speak to uh, mainly. I'll try to uh, illustrate that. Just, I don't know, maybe I need to unpack this. or This, this actually may need to be a whole message on its own, but I'll, I'll try to give you an example. Uh, because I deal so often with men, with the brokenness of masculinity in our culture in various forms, and because I also deal in with the whole subject of literature and the arts, writing, etc., uh, I seem to have an unusual sensitivity of revelation in certain aspects of that realm. It's it's kind of weird to me, but it's proven over the years to be more and more uh, true. And because I have that that realm. I'm effective in ways that I, I don't talk about publicly uh, a, a lot because some of them are very private to the people involved and some of them are really strange. And to tell some of it is, is a, little, a little embarrassing because it sounds so odd. But uh, I've, I've learned I have authority to pray and to intercede and to make declarations in certain areas related to this. And I'll try to illustrate what I'm talking about by telling uh, a story. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I, I don't know if I've ever gone into this much detail. But 
Uh, many, many years ago, over 20 years ago, Mary and I were watching a movie uh, about a young family that had come to the United States in the early 1900s. And uh, I won't go into all the details about the movie. It was about a, a Jewish immigrant family. But there was a little boy in that movie. In fact, it turned out, I think, to be his first movie. He was about five years old. And uh, I told Mary, as we were watching that movie, and as the camera focused on this little boy, I said, you see that little boy there? When they make Lord of the Rings into a movie, he's going to play Frodo. And that's that's all I said. <laughs> well, sure enough, Elijah Wood uh, would go on years later to be picked to play Frodo. Okay, why? What was the significance of that? Why was I in some kind of prophetic flow in that moment on the subject of Lord of the Rings or of Elijah Wood, who I pray for and who I bless? Well, it would be years and years later, uh, 1998, when I got a, a phone call from a friend of mine in Los Angeles who was privy to the information about the beginning of the production of Lord of the Rings. And he said, uh, I'll send you what information I have on it. We do have a partial list of the cast. Well, my heart started thumping. My hands started sweating. I know some of you would laugh at this, but I felt so personally connected to this, partly because, if any of you know some of the story related to me and Lord of the Rings, uh, the Lord of the Rings was was very, very pivotal for me in my early healing and in the healing of the masculine brokenness that I deal with with so many, so many men. Uh, but uh, there, there's there's a kind of anointing on those issues related to the healing of the masculine in our culture, which is too much to get into now. But my point that I'm trying to make is because of my relationship to that realm, I have a prophetic authority and insight in that realm that causes me to be able to see more clearly than the average person. I'm not bragging on it any more than a man who is a carpenter and knows how to use a hammer would brag on being able to use a hammer. I'm just trying to say, because of our electronics, we tend to try to take upon ourselves a platform from which we pontificate on subjects we're not called to do and we're not called to address. Uh, anyway, I was so nervous when I was opening that email to see, sure enough, there was Elijah Wood's name playing Frodo. And I turned off that my screen, and I sat there with, again, my heart kind of thumping, and I said, Lord, what what is this? And the Lord spoke to my heart right that moment. He said, there will come a great war in the next two decades, and you will know that the war has reached its place of, uh, of uh, its pinnacle, at a time when Lord of the Rings will become a target 
for the infiltration of the spirit of Baal and the spirit of Jezebel. Well, we're there now. I mean, uh, Christopher Tolkien was the guardian and protector of the Tolkien uh, enterprise. He just passed away last year. There's no one to stand guard over uh, Tolkien's Christian worldview that is obviously in Lord of the Rings. And so now here come all the woke orcs attacking from every direction to try to destroy Lord of the Rings, not by destroying it overtly, but by deforming it and twisting it and uh, dis- uh, making it worse than destroyed. It would be it would be better, really, if they just wanted to destroy it. They want to deform it so that the message is deformed, so that the healing grace that poured through its original imagery can produce deformations. Uh, it reminds me of what uh, Saruman said about the orcs when he said, they were once elves, but they uh, were deformed into a final perfection of evil. And that's what evil wants to do. So, okay, I didn't stand on a platform and nationally give a prophecy about any of this. But now that it's come to pass, I can tell you what are we supposed to do with that information. I'm not sure. I know I know some of the things that I'm supposed to pray about privately re- related to it. I know uh, some of my guys that I train, uh, I'm teaching them things that that they need to know about it. Other aspects of it may maybe just for my own private edification to give me a, a signpost to let me know that I'm where I'm supposed to be and I'm heading in the right direction. And there's many other aspects of it that again are too private for me. Uh, to to talk about here, but I, I'm I'm trying to give you an illustration. I don't get those kind of prophetic revelations on every area of spiritual warfare. There's too many for for one thing. I mean, life. Have y'all noticed life is extremely complicated? I mean, do you get that? Do you, do you get how utterly complicated? creation is, the world is, the, the battle for truth is, uh, sexuality is, relationships are, uh, science and discovery and all, all the rest of it. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, overwhelming to talk about, think about, pray about. That's one reason why I understand the necessity uh, of of prayer language, of being able to pray in other tongues. If you don't pray in other tongues, I am not suggesting that you are somehow ill-equipped or lacking. God has maybe something else for you to do. But I'm I'm I pray in tongues out of weakness. I pray in tongues because I need supernatural help. I'm so inept in other areas. I just, I mean. Romans 8 says the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we don't even know how to pray like we ought. So the Spirit himself prays through us with groanings which cannot be put into articulate speech. And that I understand that verse now more than ever. More than ever. But I, I don't see that weakness in, in such a way that makes me doubt the power of what I'm doing when I'm praying 
it actually causes me to stand in more faith. But I'm, I'm digressing. My reason for bringing all this up is Moses said, I wish that all Israel would prophesy. And Paul said, I want you all to prophesy. I long for the whole body of Christ to learn to prophesy. Whether it's speaking to someone over a cup of coffee in your living room or speaking to a total stranger in a, a park or or speaking the word of the Lord that has come to you in the middle of a worship service, whatever form it may take, I long for all of us to move in the prophetic. Why? Because, first of all, by prophecy we fight a good warfare, First Timothy tells us. So the prophetic has a lot to do with releasing the, the anointing of, of, of spiritual warfare. That's a whole other subject. But I think the reason that the reason that I had that revelation about Lord of the Rings and had other res- revelations con- connected to it that I won't delineate here uh, was because Lord of the Rings, in some ways, is a a prophetic parable of the very battle that we are in now for Middle Earth, for the close of our age, and for the return of the King. So um, I would that all of us prophesy. I, I know I went to I went to college with a young pastor who was uh, from a typical non-charismatic church system where uh, they didn't believe in the gifts. I don't know that they didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit as much as they just, they were like the Ephesians in chapter 19 of Acts. We did not know that there is a Holy Spirit. I mean, we were, <laughs> they, they loved God, they loved each other. And uh, this young pastor in the middle of his sermons would just point out somebody in his congregation by name because it was a small church and he knew everybody. But he would speak words of knowledge to them that would be life-changing, edifying, strengthening, healing, encouraging words. And I remember telling telling Mary, then uh, I said, I said, baby, let's don't ever, ever tell him that he's operating in the prophetic because it'll shut him down. He'd say, oh, I didn't mean to do that. We don't believe in that. <laughs> so just, Lord, let it happen. Well, okay, he will let it happen. Joel, Joel says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh at the end of the age, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions, and upon my servants and upon my handmaids will I pour out of my spirit and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. That's Joel chapter 2. That's God's promise. That's how this all eventually does wrap it up. So whatever prophetic stumblings and mishaps we have between now and the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, let it be a learning experience and most of all, let us be gracious to one another, forgiving one another. I get frustrated at prophets who seem to have made a, a, a cottage industry of saying what seems to gain notoriety for them. And I won't say who, because somebody might think that about me. But uh, let's, be, let's be patient. Let's be forgiving. Let's be discerning. Let's be listening. 
because this is all in progress. He who has begun a good work in us will finish it. He will perfect that which pertains to us. When we see him, we shall be like him. All creation is groaning in travail, longing for the manifestation of the sonship of the people of God, the children of God, longing for the manifestation of our sonship. All creation is groaning for that. Well, you think the Father is not hearing their groans, hearing their cries. He himself, by the Spirit, the Spirit is groaning, I'm groaning, creation is groaning, the earth is groaning, and God will bring forth the fulfillment of that groaning intercession. In the meantime, be aware that if you're discouraged and angry, it's because you had your eyes on the wrong thing. So, get back where you belong. One final word. I I was quoting Joel chapter 2 just a moment ago. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Uh, Sometimes we prophesy without even knowing we're prophesying. And uh, I think maybe that's the best way of all. I, I long for us all to prophesy. Could mean, and I think does mean, not that I long for you all to take some charismatic posture of saying, thus saith the Lord, or some such stuff as that, but of just so walking in love and walking in the Spirit that truth flows through you at times that is profoundly life-changing. And in closing, I'll give you one example. One of my spiritual sons, who's now one of the closest people to me in the world and one of my best students, when he first came to Christ, I mean, he was he was barely just beginning to walk with the Lord. He'd never read Joel chapter 2, never heard of it. But he sent me a note one day that said, don't stop dreaming for me. Your dreams will become my vision, and my vision will reach my generation. I still get still get tears in my eyes thinking about that moment. Because he was quoting Joel chapter 2, but he didn't know he was quoting Joel chapter 2. And he was speaking into existence his future, though he was not consciously aware that that's what he was doing. And he was fulfilling a prayer that I was praying for him all the time. I was dreaming for him. And that was becoming his vision. And his vision will reach his generation because it will just be a part of the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Joel describes when the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. That's what we have to look forward to. Keep your eyes there and forgive prophecy and don't despise it. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. We'll talk next time, Lord willing.